and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Turkey is headed to a second round of its presidential election. While incumbent President Erdogan's ruling alliance retained its majority in the parliament, he failed to win the presidential election outright and is now set to face opposition candidate Kemal Kilikdaroglu in a second round runoff on May 28th. Many view the outcome of the presidential election as critical in determining Turkey's future, with a victory by Kilik Darolu offering an opportunity to reverse the country's slide towards authoritarianism that has taken place under Erdogan's two decades in power. The election could also have implications for the direction of Turkish foreign policy, as Kilik Darolu has campaigned on rebuilding the country's relationships with NATO and the European Union that have badly frayed in recent years. Nonetheless, Erdogan's stronger performance during the first round suggests that he might have the edge going into the runoff, raising doubts about the likelihood of a change in power. So to discuss what may lie ahead and what it all means, we're very excited to have Stephen Cook and Asli Aydintashbash back with us on the podcast. Um, Okay, for those of you um, who don't know Stephen and Asli, Stephen is the Annie Enrico Mate, Senior Fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He is an expert on Arab and Turkish politics, as well as U.S. Middle East policy. And Asli is a visiting fellow in the Center on the United States in Europe at the Brookings Institution. Prior to joining the foreign policy community, she had a long career in journalism, during which she focused on Turkey, its domestic evolution, and foreign policy in an age of regional reshuffling and geopolitical competition. And she is coming to us um, from the ground on Istanbul. So welcome to you both. And I think you both know where I'm going to start this podcast. So for listeners who might have heard our last podcast on Turkey, we had Asli and Steven and there was quite a wager made on the outcome of the election. I think dinner is at stake with Stephen betting that Erdogan would hold on to power. And let me wait, let me let me let me inter- interrupt there for a second. Yeah, I think please. the bet wasn't actually that Erdogan would win. Okay. The bet was, was that if Erdogan lost and he gave up power and walked off into the sunset and retired in a villa somewhere without any problems that I would take Asla to any restaurant in the United States of America, <laughs> not Washington, D.C., where we both live, but any restaurant in the United States, including Alaska, Hawaii, <laughs> and any American territories that she wanted. <laughs> so we actually, I'm not I'm not quite sure we, we, we know the answer. I may still be on the hook for this because there is a second round. You are correct. I was going to see if it was about Erdogan holding on. I wanted to know if Asla was willing to concede the bet. But so I guess with that framing, give us a sense of where things are in this interim period. um, And as you're, you know, seeing things, like I said, from Istanbul directly. Well, I knew we'd come to the bet, but I was all prepared for the for to discuss it at the very end, and now I'm all uh, <laughs> thrown off. But um, so I've been in Istanbul for a week. Um, when I first came from Berlin, it was an incredible atmosphere of hope. The urban centers vote not overwhelmingly, but you know consistently for the opposition. Uh, but the results are. Uh, 
a disappointment uh, for uh, not just the opposition, but for many people, the middle class, professional class, the sort of uh, urban uh, uh, urban uh, citizens uh, of this country who hoped that this was time for change. Kalich uh, roughly uh, had 45% of support and Erdogan 49.5%. The actual voting experience in Turkey is interesting. There is a competitive monitoring mechanism uh, you know, there's representatives from different parties. But I have to say there are, and I'm not, this is not trying to bail out. This is not trying to get, a, get out of a dinner uh, commitment. But I have to say that there have also been a number of allegations of irregularities and confusion about things in this election. Uh, this doesn't mean Erdogan Erdogan is as lost and is you know he has won decisively and ran on a national campaign nationalist campaign really uh, emphasizing Turkey's military homegrown defense industry military might and really really accusing uh, the opposition of um, of of basically siding with terrorists showing. AI generated videos of opposition leader PKK commanders clapping to, you know, opposition leaders. And on the other hand, you had this the opposition campaign, which was we're all under this big tent diversity and rule of law and and sort of um, democracy, etc. And uh, two different, entirely different visions. And it's it's I have to say, um, Erdogan is has a better chance for the second round. It's not over, but there are a number of issues about this election that we need to discuss. Uh, are these allegations of you know irregularities? Are they serious? Um, is it the case that Erdogan is now a forever leader? Are Turks really wedded to the idea of a nationalist rising Turkey, or is it or is it really this the power of the incumbent and the fact that he was running against, I have to say, a very weak candidate? I'd love to hear Steve's take on it, but you know, we have we haven't really had a chance to discuss who the candidate was, except we we've been discussing his platform, but you know, it was just about the riskiest person to run against Erdogan for a whole host of reasons. And so there we are. Um when I went into the booth. Um, you know, I noticed that uh, the government party was very organized. And uh, in my, I voted. I'm a Turkish citizen, so I got a chance to vote on that day. And even in my sort of posh, secular, a pro opposition district, I thought that the governing government party was so well organized. Had their guys up there constantly checking every room and really looking tough and that, oh my God, if it feels somewhat in, you know intimidating here, I wonder how it feels elsewhere in Anatolia. That was not a way of saying um, this election was stolen, but I think it really did take place in a, in a, in, in a somewhat intimidating atmosphere. 
So let me end here, but I'd love to talk. That's about wonderful. Thanks. Thanks, Asa. That's perfect. And Stephen, it's a good segue over to you. I mean, just for your take on, I mean, I know you've written some on, on a why so many observers got it wrong because there was a lot of hope and optimism that the opposition would eke this one out in the end. Um, so maybe just, you know, to, to restate some of that work that you've already put out there and also to hear again, like why, why did Erdogan uh, outperform expectations or is it, is it that he outperformed or that we were analytically wrong? It's a, it's a great, it's a great set of questions, uh, Andrea. And, and let me just start out. Let me pick up on a couple of points that Ashla picked up on. Um, one is this question of allegations and irregularities. And I think that there is, it, it is serious. Uh, the observer mission from the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, was was very blunt in that there was in the administration of the election there was not as much transparency as they had hoped for. I think that that has to do with this question of the counting of ballots that the opposition has made an issue of. Now, there's also this question that so, you know, that's in, entirely believable that there are, that these that this might have happened, that the OSCE wouldn't have said this kind of thing. But there's also the problem that the opposition itself proved to be incompetent. They lost track of 20,000 ballot boxes. And so the, there, so there is this competitive observation. But if you cannot get the people out there to actually count the ballots, no one's ever really going to know. And I think that's essentially what the outcome is here, is that there are these allegations that will never truly be investigated and we won't really ever know and that there will be a cloud over it. But that, in fact, um, there's also a belief that even if um, they lost track of this and even if there were ballots that remain uncounted because they remain challenged, that it probably wasn't enough to put Kemal Kilich Durolu over the top. Um, so, and that that speaks to the weakness of him as a candidate. Um, you know, uh, he is perhaps a, an excellent party leader who's been able to keep together the Republican People's Party, the CHP, um, which is really a front of different groups that are kind of united around uh, not liking Erdogan, but they don't like each other <laughs> very much either. Um, but he has presided over a party that has remained essentially a regional party. And he asserted himself. He he thrust himself on his coalition partners, this, this nation alliance, otherwise known as the table of six, these six different uh these six different parties that agreed to come together to 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 put up one united candidate. And he essentially said, I'm going to be that candidate, even though he was the weakest one of the possible candidates. And if you remember in early March, the leader of the EE party, a woman named Miral Akshina, she bolted from very briefly from the Nation Alliance because she did not think that Kemal Kilitsdorolo could win. She was right, and more people should should pay attention to her. Now, as far as you know, uh, the analysis going into it, it's somewhat of an academic question, but but I wrote it with my colleague Sinan Jindi because one, you know, unless you learn from your mistakes, we can't do better next time. And, and the next time is in a, a week or so. We're going to have another. We're going to have another round. But I think that the. The commentary around the election was a lot of hope-filled analysis, uh, a little too much Twitter, um, a little too much uh, paying attention to the polls, a little bit too much paying attention to what, what was going on in the in the urban areas. And Ash was right, and you know these 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 parties, you know, um, 
the opposition was bound to do quite well in the major urban centers without paying enough attention to what was going on. And I think discounted going into the vote on May 14th was was precisely what Asher was talking about, the, the organizational machine that is the just President Erdogan's Justice and Development Party. The fact that he can instrumentalize the state, the fact that, you know, approximately 90 percent of the media that that people live in an immediate environment that is dominated by the Justice and Development Party. And then let's not let's be fair here. President Erdogan clearly has a message, a message based on culture, based on identity, on power, on piety, on prosperity, although Turks are not enjoying prosperity right now. During his tenure, they have. That clearly resonates with lots of people. And I think because uh, Erdogan, the, the slide, the very clear slide into authoritarianism, especially from the days when Turkey was making moves to become a candidate or, or an actual candidate that negotiates membership in the European Union. We've, we've really gone a long way um, that I, I think that colored all of those things kind of colored the analysis and that. Um, but Kilicdrolo also plays a very big role here. I think that Erdogan has woken up in the last week or so and thanked Allah for Kilicdrolo rather than Imamolu. Actually, Imamolu was the the mayor of Istanbul was a strong opponent. They talk about instrumentalizing the power of the state. He's been banned for allegedly insulting members of the Supreme Election Council going back to 2019. So there were other potential stronger candidates that put up, but part of the problem is Kilitzrolo imposed himself on his lines, but also Erdogan's very, very strong, and the AKP is very well organized. I know Jim wants to get in with a question, but I want to follow up with one slightly more academic question before we move on. Which is, I mean, in thinking of the analysis of the elections, when you look at the political science literature on authoritarianism and when do these autocrats lose elections? Well, there were some really interesting indicators to suggest that conditions were right for Erdogan to lose, which is the opposition unity. That was obviously key. And I hear you saying that the guy they picked wasn't maybe the strongest one to lead that unified bloc and the economy. And you just had the earthquake, which exposed regime incompetence. So a lot of stars did align that made it it's definitely seem plausible that he could lose. And so this is my question. Autocrats only lose when they're in competitive uh, authoritarian regimes. There are no instances of the more hegemonic authoritarian regimes that lose elections. It just doesn't happen because of the advantages of incumbency, the strength of the party, able to manipulate the, the, the system. And so my question is, is this indicative that that Turkey has even further fallen into authoritarianism, that the organs of this, like that, that the elites and the party and the state just he can't lose given given the constellation of forces now? So it, like, is this a statement of where Turkey is and an indication that we have that we have slid further into authoritarianism? Are elections I've, no longer able to remove him from power? I I, I I have some thoughts on the academic literature, but I'm quite curious what Aslo thinks on that on that point, because she is a voter in Turkey. And I know that Turks feel very, very strongly about the vote and 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 have him and, and this is very, very important. Um, unlike in other places where you have alleged competitive authoritarianism where vote is not as deeply held. Um, but but Aslo, please, and then I'll I'll, I'll comment just quickly on the on the literature. I don't I still don't think of Erdogan as a lifetime president. 
And um, on some level, I, I think this is his last stand, whether it's this year or next year or in five years from now. And I think that I still think that forces for change are there very strong. It's just not the case that Kılıç, that Turks feel Kılıçdaroğlu is the guy to have that mandate, and for a good reason. Uh, I mean, uh, we've talked about his weakness, but if we were to unpack it, uh, Steve was, Stephen has talked about you know how he's sort of engineered this uh, process. He he was essentially Erdogan's handpicked rival, by way of eliminating the other guys. Also something very important, perhaps for analytical reasons at least, and something we don't people don't talk about in Turkey that much, in large part out of a sense of political correctness on the part of the opposition, which is that he comes from a minority background, minority sectarian background. He comes from an Alevi background. There's no conversation about this in Turkey, but that has clearly been the campaign on uh, part of the campaign on on the on the government side and it has it seems to have triggered some type of a sunni reflex so it's it's it's, so to go back to your question and there's one more detail i want to add uh you know Stephen has talked about 20,000 ballots not being monitored out of 190,000, which is the number that we, we're seeing mentioned in media. But my own reporting is the number of ballots in which opposition had no clue, no feedback from on the night of the opposition is three times that. So 60,000 out of- They're even more incompetent than we you thought. You can't win an election in any country like that. You can't win it in America. You can't win it in Denmark if you don't have people, if you don't know what's happening in the ballots. So, um, but to go back to your question, is this doom? Uh, you know, it's hard for me to answer in the sense that what if some of these things were different? Yes, there is an overwhelming, it's not just a government, it's a regime, let's face it, that is the case. But Kılıçdaroğlu still managed to get 45%, and had they done better, had he been a different person, not the you know the designated CHP leader who's been running against Erdogan and losing for the past, since 2010, basically, it may, I can't help but think it may have been different under a different person and a better organization. But um, Stephen, what do you say? Well, I, I, I certainly understand that perspective. And I certainly think that that's possible that had Erdogan faced a, a, a better candidate, he might have lost, which is precisely the point is that Erdogan did pick his own opponent. And he did win, even if Kilich Starlo did well. And, and But I, I want to get back to Andrew's question about the, the literature. You know, it wouldn't be the first time that the academic literature, the political science literature on authoritarianism and democracy was wrong, right? Remember when we were in grad school and we read all about the, the levels of democracy, that that at a certain level of PDG, uh, PGG, GDP per capita, et cetera, there were a number of indicators that democracies would become consolidated and not slide back. Turkey hit that. And we've seen this decade-long descent into uh, into authoritarianism. I don't know whether Erdogan is going to be the president um, for life, 
Um, but I do think that this election is potentially a hinge moment, um, that there has been 20 years in which the AKP has hollowed out, bent, or discovered new institutions to help ensure that it remains in power. And now it has at least, it seems like, unless we have some total surprise, that Erdogan will have another five years at the helm and that there will be more institutional innovation going forward. And so that they may permanently change uh, change Turkey. And we may see the situation where people continue to contest elections and, and, and work their hearts out and believe, but that the obstacles are so great because of um, the, the institutional change that Erdogan and the AKP has wrought. And that's what I think is, I think it's a possibility um, that has happened. And I do think one last point on the academic literature, and I know that Jim is, I could see he's jumping out of his seat. He wants to make a point here um, that I think the academic literature does not deal very well with questions about identity and culture. And that's precisely what Asha was talking about, that, 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 that cultural is Alevi. Um, there was clearly messages about that, clearly messages about Kurds, uh, Islam more broadly. And, and that resonated with people, even in the quake zone, um, where people were not supposed to vote for Erdogan because the relief was so bad. So I think we need to rethink some of these things going forward. And Turkey is a perfect is a perfect case study to, to rethink some of these issues that we've thought about. I definitely want to come back to the nationalism and identity issues, but I will, Jim, you have waited very patiently. Well, you know, you've taken on the characteristics of Erdogan. Uh, you're sitting here as a tyrant for Russell Sprouts, and I'm continually put back in with the in the purge, in the purge corner with everybody else. But uh, but uh, no, just kidding. Um, you know, uh, first of all, a very important statement on the bet. I really do believe this should be a Brussels Sprouts party, and that we all go to dinner and we can invite listeners to come to. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Sounds like a lot of fun. Sounds like a lot of fun. And really, it was only a one-sided bet. It was me saying to Asla that I'd take her. She didn't agree to take me anywhere in the United States. It was really just on me. So that's a great compromise. It's a great compromise. You guys out to dinner. I don't know about listeners. But Brussels sprouts must have a huge budget if they're going to take us all out. There's, there's a great Turkish restaurant in downtown Washington. I think we'll all go there. We'll ask the Turkish embassy to come, uh, and it'll be just uh, it'll be a party. So do so do keep that in mind. But uh, but but for my question, you know, if if we go ahead and assume now that uh, the Erdogan will come out on top after the second round, so what what should we expect then uh, from a, uh, a a a newly uh, re-anointed? Uh, strong man of Turkey. Uh, what what can what can we in the West uh, expect now? Is he going to be emboldened, become even more uh, thrusting in terms of Turkish positions uh, uh, in Europe with uh, Ukraine, with uh, with the Russians, with the with NATO and the EU, with the United States? So so what what do you think we can expect from Erdogan? And then secondly, if you were in the White House. Now, and Erdogan wins, of course, you got to get the phone call, you know, you got to do the talking points uh, for the president to talk to Erdogan to congratulate him. So what do you put in those talking points? I mean, you, you can make it vanilla and say, congratulations, look forward to seeing you at the summit, blah, blah, you know, but but really, how should the U.S. now deal with Turkey? Because our 
I, as we've discussed, our our relationship bilaterally is really in in the in the dumps, uh, and we very much want to see Sweden in NATO. That's a big thing for the U.S. That's good, and we want to see it by Vilnius. And we've put a lot on this uh, election as being when Erdogan, after this election, Erdogan will make the decision, let Sweden in. So, so you know, so what can we expect from this this new Erdogan? And what would you put into the not necessarily the president's talking points, but in his background papers in terms of the new bilateral relationship between the U.S. and Turkey, what would you put into that background paper? Who should go? Why don't you go ahead? Okay. So a newly anointed Erdogan um, is going to face an economic calamity. Um, Turkey has burned through nine billion over this past week, nine billion dollars in order to prop up the lira that they will continue to do on money they've borrowed from Russia, UAE, Saudi Arabia, Qatar and central bank state coffers. It's all, you know, it's we are looking into a balance of payments situation territory. So what he will want ultimately is legitimacy and a recognition from the West. The Biden administration and in large part European allies have been holding him uh, him at an arm's distance uh, because he is such a controversial figure now in the West and because the relationship is so difficult and fraught with tension that easiest thing was to keep a distance. But I think uh, my sense is that um, you know, the Biden administration will probably be more of a pragmatist now, more transactional. Uh, but and what he will want would be more visibility, more photo ops, more. Uh, he he may find friends in 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 the world of autocracy, and he may get along with Putin. But essentially, financial flaws. Uh, financial flaws and legitimacy are things that only come from the West. He's trying to do this balancing act between Russia and the West, but the the the, the one leg of that table is is not there. So I think that's what he would try to do. Essentially, accept you know, go to President Biden, go to European leaders, and say, look, I won again. Now uh, accept me as the Sultan of Bosphorus, as the leader of Turkey, and let's start talking about these issues. He, what he, I think Erdogan, I don't really necessarily think Erdogan would, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the election would be assertive militarily in Eastern Mediterranean or even Syria, but I think he would want some type of uh, recognition that Turkey uh, has a zone of influence in its neighborhood. And that's a very difficult conversation because uh, people understand that Turkey is pivotal in a lot of these issues, you know, in Russia and the war in Ukraine, in terms of our long-term ability to prevail in this struggle against, um, you know, Russia, China, but on the other hand, a deal with Turkey effectively involves um, giving Turkey its own uh, 
strategic autonomy, but zone of influence. And I think these issues will be difficult, but my sense is President Biden would say, I am totally making it up now because I haven't spoken to anybody in the administration since the elections. And But I, I have a sense of, you know, plan A, plan B, plan C, how these things work out in, in, in with elections in, in different countries. My sense would be at some point, President Biden would say, look, this is not the relationship we'd like to have. We need to have we can do so much more together. Let's you and me meet up sometime and talk about these issues, et cetera. Try to, try to get to a place where uh, at least uh, an engagement or a conversation could start. Well, Even, that's that's helpful. Know, yeah. Erdogan has never been magnanimous in victory. So... so if he goes to this second round and he wins, uh, it'll be as if he didn't have to go to a second round. It will be as if he has yet another mandate, a, a large one, one that he actually never really ever enjoyed. He's never been really above 50%, um, but he will nevertheless act as if he is at 75%. Uh, his prime directive has been to be the president on the 100th anniversary of the republic. And I, I, I suspect he'll declare in some way that he is as, if not more important than the founder of the republic, Mustafa Kemal, who we all know is, as, as, as Ataturk. So I, I think that he will see this as a vindication. I, Ashley makes a very good point about the dire economic circumstances that Turkey is in. Um, I think that, you know, the, he will continue to try to muddle through on that. I don't expect suddenly Turkey will run off to the IMF. I think that he'll continue to see the very large sovereign wealth funds among his new friends in the Gulf as a potential source to help prop up uh, the, the Turkish economy. I think that the connection to the West remains very, very important. But I think that also, if you look at what Erdogan has done at least over the last decade, but perhaps more, is try to chart a more independent path. And so while he wants to maintain those ties and the financial ties to the West, and I think that's right, it is, remains important for Turkey to do that, There's you're going to see an exploration of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and more Turkish uh, diplomatic efforts to be, be part of the BRICS, um, to really be independent. And I think this speaks to an idea that I've talked about over and over and over again, which is that Turkey feels that an American-led order in the world is not necessarily in Turkey's best interest because Turkey wants to truly pursue an independent foreign policy. It doesn't want to be an asset to NATO. It doesn't want to be an appendage of NATO. It wants to be a European, Mediterranean, Middle Eastern power, a power in the Caucasus, and a Muslim power. And, and I was talking about this, this idea of a zone of influence. I think that that's that's right. I think, though, it's going to come into contact with an American view of how the world should be ordered or and, and a lot of other countries views of how the world should be ordered. And it's going to create significant uh, amount of, of tension. It's also for the White House. This is extremely, extremely difficult. And if I was sitting next to the president, say, you got to keep it vanilla. You, you got to keep it as vanilla as possible, because if you really embrace Erdogan, you're you're truly undermining your democracy versus autocracy thing. You already didn't invite him to your second summit of the, the democracy. If you embrace him, all of your critics who've said that 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 
you know, the whole leading with values thing was was just rhetoric. We'll be you'll prove them right once again. Um, but I do think that in order to uh, have unity within NATO, uh, there will be some some symbolic things that the administration will do. It will lobby Congress on F-16s. Um, but it, the president's going to have to decide whether he wants to pick a fight with the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee over this, who can make the administration's life extremely difficult on a on a variety of issues. So it it will certainly not be easy for a reset. But a reset from the from the perspective of the Turks is Washington accepting Turkey's view of the world, and that's not that's not likely to happen. What do you think is going to happen about Sweden? Just to jump in for a second, Andrea, uh, is is that going to be? Uh... All eyes are going to be on him uh, on that issue. Uh, you know, once the champagne has been drunk and the hangovers, hangovers are, you know, looked after, uh, they're going to say, well, how about Sweden? When are you going to when are you going to let him go? Uh, any well, guess I, on that or is it we're just going to have to see? Do you think I'll, we'll let, Asha, I'll let Asha, I, I my only information is come actually comes from the Turks. And they said they expect Sweden to perform and that everything will be in place in June. And if the if the if the Swedes do certain things, certain laws that they've already approved are actually passed. This is some constitutional issue in Sweden. I don't understand yep. Swedish politics. I've never even tried. But the the Turkish government, senior people within the Turkish government, have said that within the first couple of weeks of June, if the Swedes perform, they should be able to they should be able to do it. Whether that happens, yeah, Turks so- have been known to move the move the goalposts on this. I think President Erdogan will ask for more. I mean, Sweden is passing its anti-terror legislation. I think that goes into effect in July. And I understand they are, and this is a difficult thing to talk about, but I understand they're thinking of extradition, you know, extradition, uh, two, two, three, extraditing people. People that uh, PKK affiliated with the PKK that Turkey demands, uh, but uh, I don't think it would cut it for President Erdogan after this election. Uh, you know, in this country, the election took place in an extremely and openly publicly anti-American atmosphere. Minister of Interior said uh, May fourteenth, the election day is a coup attempt by United States. Uh, Every single day, President Erdogan accused uh, the West, United States, or specifically Joe Biden of supporting the opposition, trying to undermine Turkey, supporting the PKK, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, The opposition came back and said, and accused the government of being supported by Russia, or they complained about Russian interference. And so um, in this uh, very strange uh, geopolitical fight, um, President Erdogan will tr- drive a tougher bargain than he intended a month ago. Stephen, you and I probably spoke to the same people. Yes, the signaling was that, you know, we will say yes in the end. We just want Sweden to do a couple of things. But I I worry, I, my sense is, my intuition, I should say, my intuition is that it won't be as easy and there will be more drama and more of an effort to get uh, 
the Biden administration uh, to be more forward-leaning on some of Turkey's demands. I can't imagine going into this Vilnius summit without headline-grabbing drama that involves NATO. There will be I like- think you're, I, I think you're right. I mean, again, I'm just responding to what senior Turkish officials have said uh, directly to me and others in Washington, but I, I couldn't agree with you more. There's definitely going to be drama, especially going into the summit, because even at post-election, Erdogan's going to have to show people that he is a big dog in NATO. So I guess I want to pick up on that, which is you both, you know, talked about the nature of the campaign, you know, highly nationalist. I think there was an ultra nationalist candidate who won around 5% of the vote. It seemed interesting to me that in this period in between the election that Kilis Darolu is talking about repatriating Turkey's millions of refugees so I want maybe just to draw you out a little bit on what does this election tell you about where Turkish society is? Is it, has anything been surprising or have you learned anything? And Stephen, you kind of raised that question at, towards the beginning of the podcast was, you know, was this election outcome about Turks supporting Erdogan and his kind of nationalist views or was this just that the other guy wasn't so good. Like, what what did this election tell you about where Turks are in Turkish society is? And I mean, I think it, it gets to your point of too, like Erdogan's going to have to demonstrate that he lives up to all of this anti-American and very nationalist rhetoric. So will this drive him further in foreign policy than you might have thought before the election? Let me take it. Take this issue first. Um, I think you know what did I learn from from this election? What I, I think there there are a couple of things that I think are very important for Turkey analysts to to keep in mind. And one of those is, and something that I've been struggling with is, what category does Turkey belong in? Is it competitive authoritarian? Is it not competitive authoritarian? Is there such a thing as an elected autocracy? Is that what we're going to see going forward? I mean, this stymies the political scientist in me is how actually to 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 categorize Turkey. I mean, I think it was the leading edge. People often talk about Hungary. I think it was really the leading edge in the kind of de-democratization uh, going forward. But where is it now? Especially since, as as Ashley points out in, in, in quite a poignant way about, you know, Turks working really hard, the opposition working really hard and how important their votes are. And then before we recorded about you know, how Istanbul has been so quiet, it sort of reminded me of being on the subway in New York City the day after Election Day in 2000 and 2004, where people thought John Kerry, a weak candidate, would win without really understanding what was going on in the rest of the country. And I think that that's important to understand. And that's the segue into the other thing that I learned, which is it's not look, we, we have culture and identity issues everywhere. And especially with, you know, right wing populists really dominating the global global politics right now. It, it it strikes me that you asked, you know, was it, you know, was it nationalism? Was it Islamism? Was it this anti-Americanism? And or, or was it that Kemal Kilic Dorola was so weak? I think it was all of those things. Um, and but I do think that if you look at the parliamentary, uh, the results of the parliamentary election where the AKP and its 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 partner, the Nationalist Action Party, Nationalist Movement Party, um are, are retaining a majority. Um that the Turkish version of Islamism 
I don't want to say Islamism writ large. I got I got in trouble with that yesterday in a, in a forum. The Turkish version of Islamism and nationalism, both of which are in, in its forms anti-democratic, um, resonate deeply with people. And again, I'm not singling out Turks. We should look at what's happening in the United States with religious nationalism and so on and so forth. But this is a phenomenon that really played itself out in, in, in this election against a better organized opposition than ever. And as Asha pointed out, I mean, with all of this, Philip Storolu outperformed what CHP had done before. I mean, he got 45% of the vote. That's actually pretty good under the circumstances. Um, so those are those were the things that I think um, were really, uh, I think, important to take away from this. How do you how do you categorize Turkey now? Um, and two, the, the 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 deep importance of the Turkish version of Islamism and 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 nationalism, which I think have been there, and that Erdogan has kind of successfully fused in ways that, that you know previous efforts at this have been have been different. And perhaps not as politically successful. Asa, what would you add? So um, it feels like, based on the polit political structure that has emerged, particularly in parliament, Turkey today is far more nationalist and far right than it was a week ago. Um, there are various different. <laughs> The different uh, streams of national stream uh, strains of nationalism represented in the parliament from uh, uh, the, in different political parties, even on the opposition camp. And you also have now um, Islamist Salafist groups that have entered under the uh, government umbrella. Also, more Islamist uh, Islamist groups that are more Islamist than uh, the uh, governing Ak Party. So it 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 is it doesn't look good, and it does it it is the opposite of the mood in the country twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, even ten years ago, when it was all about opening and movement towards EU and and um, and uh, reform and democratization and so on. Um, so few thoughts, nationalism is such a strong force. And I, uh, obviously it's something that's reinforced on a daily basis in this country through the educational system, through the uh, acceptable, accepted uh, political lingo, through media and everything, but it is such a strong force. And can you, just when you think you can't get any more nationalist, you have another a guy that comes out to out, out national outdo you in nationalism. The third party candidate, Sinanoan, is an interesting figure. He emerges out of nowhere, not nowhere, he's a known commodity in Turkish politics, but he decides to run as an independent, 5%, largely on anti-refugee uh feelings but you know he he's uh, but he's an interesting figure because um he's done for example his uh, part of his uh, is it his master's degree or phd in moscow he's he's fluent in russian and azeri he's a fluent russian and azeri speaker he's worked in azerbaijan i'm not saying this to suggest that he is a, a, you know a, in any case, in, in any sense a russian uh, uh, operative. I am saying that to suggest that this is not a, a prototype I'm used to. 
I've worked in Turkey, I've covered Turkish politics as a journalist, and it's very unusual to have someone who's, who's, uh, you know, who's a Russian speaker, or you, you can run into people who've lived in the US, lived in England. Uh, but, you know, it, it is probably indicative of the direction, uh, the non-aligned uh, and maybe Eurasianist sentiments that are also part of the political culture now that comes with anti-Westernism. I have uh, three, um, maybe it's unrelated, but three groups of people, uh, three categories that that I'm worried about from this, not necessarily from Erdogan, but from this whole uh, pol political consensus that is emerging. The first is obviously refugees. Uh, you know, different part, part, political parties were in a race to come up with plans to send back refugees. I'll do it in a year. I'll do it in two years. We'll do it with voluntary returns. We'll build factories and they go back. We'll do this. We'll, you know, it's just so frightening for Syrians, but also other people, uh, Uzbeks and Afghans and uh, and uh, Iraqis who've been living in this country. Yes, there are many refugees in Turkey, and within a very short span, within a short time frame, there's. It seems that they have, uh, you know, it's become a, a significant enough number that people are reacting to it, and we can't ignore that as a political phenomena. But on the other hand, uh, one worries about a situation in which. Uh, you know, refugees are scapegoated for economic problems and, and have to pay a price in a situation where rule of law is international norms and put on hold. I worry about uh, Kurdish, pro-Kurdish party in the sense that I think they are a legitimate uh, political party. Throughout the campaign, President Erdogan has been talking about them as an extension uh, a political extension of the PKK, therefore illegitimate. I mean, terrorists in parliament is the is the language that's being talked about, and accusing the opposition of of working with terrorists in parliament. I mean, you know, if if we shut down in this sort of in a mass hysteria collectively, if we shut down legitimate expressions, political expressions of of Kurdish in for for Kurds for Kurdish politics, I I don't know what it means, both as a society and, and regionally. And also, um, I, I I don't really worry too much about East Med and Aegean and relations with Greece. Somehow I think that both countries will find a way of managing their differences, occasionally flare, you know, controlled, controlled escalation at times, but but what I worry about is perhaps South Caucasus, you know, Armenia, Azerbaijan space. Armenia is a, a repeat of the 2020 war. Um, I think that, um, you know, Armenia is very vulnerable and uh, Azerbaijan is, uh, the, the Azeri-Armenian peace talks are not, uh, have not reached yet resulted in a peace settlement. South Caucasus is an area I am watching with concern. I would have liked to see Turkish-Armenian normalization in part because that is a way of stabilizing the area and also 
bringing uh, potentially uh, peace between Armenia and Azerbaijan. I don't know how with this parliament, with this sort of policy that's emerging, I don't know if there is any room for that, to be honest, despite the fact that government has come out and said they would like to open the border, they would like to normalize relations with Armenia. That's maybe, yeah. Can I jump in uh, just for just for a just a, a quick question uh, as well? That was that was massive. That uh, that very interesting perspective uh, on on what what we might see uh, regionally. That there's a lot to unpack there. But 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 if you take it uh, another ten thousand feet higher and and play off of something that Stephen had said uh, when he said that really when you're looking at Turkey. Uh, Turkey looks at the, uh, you know, the West and this uh, international order that the U.S. has developed as something that might not necessarily be in Turkey's interests. Uh, you hear that same kind of sentiment coming out of Moscow, as we know, um, uh, and also out of China. So I'm wondering if uh, with, with um, Erdogan coming back in, if he wants to kind of build out on this idea of Turkey uh, trying to not only carve itself its own niche there uh, in the region, of, as, as both of you all have talked about that, but but I'm wondering if uh, if if in Moscow and in Beijing they're looking on Turkey and Erdogan as someone that could be very helpful to them uh, as as not only adding a kind of kind of a Turkish perspective to this idea that there's another way besides the U.S. way uh, in terms of looking at the international order, um, and uh, and so. Uh, you know, also Moscow looking on Turkey as a, as a really now a wedge uh, that they could play in terms of NATO and, and the West. And uh, Turkey could be the bad boy in NATO now uh, uh, as because uh, Erdogan has decided to get closer to, to Russia now, uh, recognizing that, uh, yeah, he, he does have a different view of the world than the U.S. does. And he's hearing that Moscow and Beijing or that. And so you're starting to see those three working together in ways that are going to be troubling if they if, if Turkey and NATO, you know, with that kind of view. I mean, are we do we still share values? I mean, I so you see the complication. So my question for you is, do you think that really uh, maybe Erdogan is going to look on this as an opportunity for him to really take a hold of this idea of of uh, look, uh, you know, just because we're in NATO, that doesn't mean we agree with everything the United States says. I think that is the policy. I think that is the approach to foreign policy under Erdogan, particularly over the last five years, but but perhaps more. I think when it comes to, I don't have a really good feel for the how the Chinese view view Erdogan. I, I think that there's been some some issues there early on. Uh, Turkey took a very tough line on the Uyghur issue backed off. Um, I know that the Chinese don't see Turkey in that kind of most important strategic partner category that they, for example, have put Iran and Saudi Arabia and the Omanis and so on and so forth, but still think it's important. And of course, Chinese investment is important around the world. I think where Russia, that's that's really the issue here. I don't think that the Russians are going to peel Turkey away. Um, but I do think that they're intent on having a relationship with Turkey. They have a robust economic relationship, and Turkey has proven itself to be a, a a good partner in working through a variety of issues. Even if Turkey and Russia are on opposite ends of conflicts in Libya and Nagorno Karabakh and Syria, um, there is 
interests there. And one of those interests, one of those common interests is um, resisting an American-led order. That's where Erdogan and and, and Putin sort of meet. Um, And I I think that it's enough for Putin to have that relationship with a NATO member to cause to cause problems. It's not the kind of thing like, for example, the way the United States flipped Egypt in the 1970s. That's not it's not necessary. It may not even be advantageous for Putin for him to do that. Um, but I will say in, in defense, I think that the I think that the relationship between Russia and Turkey has in some ways been beneficial. You would not have the grain deal that you've had without that relationship. And that's extraordinarily important to a lot of countries, including other strategic partners of the United States, namely Egypt, country yeah. of 110 million people that is dependent upon grain from both Russia and Ukraine. And, and the Turks were instrumental in making that making that happen. So it's not all bad. If if we need a leader, if, if Putin doesn't trust anybody in the West, uh, but he can talk to Erdogan and we have a proper perspective of what Erdogan is after, it, it could be it could be OK. But if we keep telling ourselves that Turkey has to be it has to be the West and it has to be totally aligned with the United States and it has to be all of these things rather than it just right. being Turkey. Right. We're going to we're going to run into lots of problems. Yeah. I think that seems to be the theme, right, is like forcing countries to pick a side isn't working so well. And I think I think that message is gaining traction with folks in the administration and in Congress and other places that that's not a winning strategy. But Asli, anything you want to add? Well, so, I mean, I I, I do agree with Stephen. And uh, this is a country that now thinks of itself as a whole in itself. And um, it's not that they want to be a Russian vassal. Uh, And that relationship uh, looks very chummy, but it has its own internal tensions. Um, And I think that, um, you know, like many middle powers, they think of themselves as a future global power that may be... uh, exaggerated but you know the campaign here was Erdogan's campaign here was called century of Turkey 21st century will be the century of Turkey he keeps repeating and telling his base I mean I I think the question and and no doubt that you know Turkey sees uh, I I also agree with Stephen that you know Turkey sees U.S.-led order as more as in terms of something that uh, prevents Turkey from fulfilling its potential regional in 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 in, in, its, in the re- regional leadership role it wants to play. The question is, what is the response? I think that I think that uh, they don't want, they also worry about being too close to Russia for reasons that have to do with Russian behavior, Russia's way of handling its allies. The relationship Russia establishes with allies is more hierarchical than, than Turkey can accept, both in its own region and in, in terms of the bilateral relationship. And what should the U.S. response be? Should U.S. essentially be... Um, humoring Turkey and some of this stuff and engage uh, in order to keep it on, on uh, you know, on, 
in NATO and uh, and in order for the partnership to continue, because let's not forget there's the grain deal, but there's also other ways that Turkey has been useful or might be useful or might be useful in, in the future. Um, I think that in the short term, we can see Turkey doing its playing act, perhaps in order to assert independence, President Erdogan might push to be an interlocutor and push for negotiations in Ukraine, uh, in the war in Ukraine. But the question is, you know, this is Erdogan. This is how he wants to position Turkey and himself. What should the response be? Well, this has been really, I think, a fascinating conversation. I, I, I don't, I found it incredibly useful and rich and deep. And I feel like, um, I don't know, walking away with a different understanding of where Turkey is. Um, and so, I really appreciate it. Obviously, we'll see what happens in the elections on the twenty. <laughs> exactly, we could be surprised again. <laughs> yeah, we might have to put out a quick revision and kind of no, no, just kidding. Turks are in the West and they want to renew their relationship with the EU. And no, but this, I mean, I really, I, I very much appreciate both of your insights. Um, and you know, if there is a surprise come the twenty eighth, then we will definitely do this again. Well, let's definitely do it again, regardless. Exactly, a- Jim's paying. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I seen as is. I've already gotten permission uh, from Andrea to announce that. So we're 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 good. <laughs> Sounds great. Amazing. Well, we will do this again, um, irrespective of what happens on the twenty eighth. But thanks again for taking the time to do this. And um, I always learn so much from both of you. So thank you. Yeah, it was a great thank pleasure. You. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.